Last Sunday, we began looking at the book of Acts, and it's going to take a long time, and that's okay. We're going to go step by step, sometimes chapter by chapter, sometimes smaller chunks, just like we did with, with Mark in, in 2020. And so last week was an introductory time. We learned about Luke. We learned the person, Luke, who wrote this, this book, Acts, as a kind of part two to his gospel of Luke. And so this morning, let's look at the first thing that, that Luke chooses to, to, to reveal, or God reveals through him, I should say. And um, that is several stories about, well, first of all, what you, that is the disciples, what Jesus was communicating to them, what you will receive and what you will not receive. So again, in that fourth verse, when they were um, you know, eating together with Jesus, uh, remember that, that time between his resurrection and his ascension was about 40 days, and Jesus kind of came and went. They didn't always have him with them, and, but we have various episodes recorded in the Gospels where, where Jesus was once again with them physically, making, you know, making that much more sure that they knew it was really him and he really was alive. And, and not just alive, he was physically alive. He ate with them. That's why Thomas wanted to touch him physically. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't some aberration that, you know, that spoke to them from beyond the grave. He came from the grave and was physically alive again. And so on this occasion, he tells them not to leave Jerusalem because they are going to receive something. What you will receive is the promised Holy Spirit, as he had told them. Now, now where and when did he tell them that? Well, we have it from John in the 14th chapter in the, in the hours, day or so before he was crucified. John, John writes a lot from that what Jesus said there, and part of that is in John 14, 15 through 27. These would be fairly familiar words, but, but it's important that I read all of them because it, it gives you this sense that, that Jesus is reminding them of something that he just told them about not that long ago. He's drawing it back to their attention because it is of great importance. John 14, beginning at 15. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and Make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. 
All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Holy Spirit, going to be sent. So this is what Jesus is speaking about. Now, I mentioned that's what they're going to receive, and there's a few more things, but here's what they won't receive, and I I go to this based upon the the response from the disciples. It says in the sixth verse, they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Well, what you're not going to receive is exactly that, a restoration of the kingdom of Israel. What's interesting is if you, um, if you go to Luke's gospel at the, toward the end when uh, after the resurrection, only Luke tells the story of Jesus, uh, of two of the disciples, the day of his resurrection and the news had happened of the resurrection, but everyone was kind of confused. People weren't sure if they believed it, they didn't know what to do with it. And so these two of the disciples were walking on a road to Emmaus, and Jesus appeared to them and with them and talked with them, but they didn't recognize him right away. And they carried on this conversation. And so um, Jesus was asking them, what's going on? Why are you guys troubled? And I just want to read one verse from that passage, okay? This is Luke 24, 20. So these are these two disciples speaking to Jesus, although they didn't know it was him. The chief priests and, and our rulers handed him, that is Christ, over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Now hear that. That was their, that was their attitude. Now, at, if you, at a certain level, that's right, because Jesus did redeem Israel, but he redeemed all people, okay? But there might be something more than the, 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 a spiritual redemption in mind, and it seems that they were thinking also, and maybe even exclusively, in more of a political framework because of the question they asked Jesus here in Acts chapter 1. Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? We want David back. We want Solomon back. We want the glory days back. We want our freedom back. And and those things in and of themselves aren't necessarily wrong. Every every nation wants to be free, and they were under Roman oppression. Every nation wants to live well and to be able to to freely worship their God and, and, and to be prosperous and successful. But is that why Jesus died on the cross and rose again? So... They're asking this question about, and they say, you know, kingdom to Israel. Well, if you do a study of all the times that Jesus uses the phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, you will find it 86 times in the Gospels. Never once does he say directly or even imply that the kingdom of heaven is having Israel restored the way it once was. Never once. Of course, he mentions Israel, he talks about Israel, he wasn't Israelite, but their 
their goal, their, their, their desire was still more political than spiritual, and they didn't yet understand. So what won't you receive? Restoration of the kingdom of Israel. And then secondly, at the, the end of, in verse 7, excuse me, and he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Now, even, so, so in effect, he's saying, even if there is such a thing or were such a thing, don't worry about it. It's not for you to know. You could spend a fortune or spend countless hours, especially now with the Internet, uh, where you can spend hours looking at just about any subject imaginable and some unimaginable and some you don't want to imagine, just paging through what people post and what people, not, not just social media, but websites and, and stuff about just about any topic. And, and one of the more popular topics, at least among Christians, is end times and prophecy. And there's people who, you know, propose themselves to be experts, and here's what we believe is happening, and here's what's going on, and, and, um, and they plug in the news, and they have their uh, interpretation of Revelation, which is an extremely difficult book to interpret. And anyone who says they've got it figured out, that's a cue for me that I'm going to stay away from them. All right? Uh, I, I know I said this before. You want to find something interesting on the internet? Go and find a list of people, especially in the last 150, maybe even 200 years, but the last century, who claimed that Jesus was coming and had a date, and people that followed them. Or, and it does go beyond Christianity, too. There were other um, end-of-the-world predictions from, from other religions or people that didn't, didn't claim Jesus or weren't even following the Bible. But Christianity seems to have be the, you know, the center focus of that. And all you have to do is go back to Acts 1 to see the attitude we're supposed to have about it. It's not for you to know all these mysteries of God, even the ones that are going to happen. As I said, restore Israel to their greatness, the way in which the disciples appear to be desiring. That wasn't going to happen. But even the second coming and end times and whatever else all that means, you know, it, it's in the word of God. So at a certain level, we, we need to understand. But when you, when you start to look at it, it, it always comes down to simply focus on today, be ready as if the Lord's coming back today. And, and so what did he draw their attention back to? Um, and, and just as, as an additional support of this, if you go to Matthew 24 and a long passage where couple, covers a couple of chapters where Jesus is talking about end of the world kind of stuff, he says, but about that day and hour where no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. So there's that same idea of, of don't get caught up in it. Um, and I know that Matthew 24 and 25 is not, a lot of that has already been fulfilled. A lot of that happened 40 years after Jesus um, you know, ascended into heaven and most of the disciples were still alive when Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed. So much of the focus of, of Jesus' words about this were about that. There is more than that and he was also looking beyond that 
okay? And, and sometimes it, it seems like it, it's, it's woven in against itself or, or you know, on top of itself. But uh, so again, even those passages are not easy to interpret. So be careful with that. Don't get caught up with it because it's not for you to know. Don't worry about it. But then he draws them back to what you will receive. You're not going to receive restoration for Israel. You're not going to receive secret information about the end. But you will receive spiritual power. Verse 8. But you will receive, the pow- you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will receive power. He's communicating to the disciples. You're still seeking political power. You're still seeking freedom for your people. I'm going to give you something better. Um, When the Holy Spirit comes on you, he's speaking about what's going to happen shortly, what we'll look at next week from Acts 2. Stay tuned. And you will be my witnesses. Telling Christ's story, and not just Christ's story, the man, you know, born in Bethlehem and grew up and and called by God, followed John the Baptist leading, and then uh, in terms of John John preparing the way, excuse me, and then Jesus, it was time for him to begin to speak, and he, he spoke, he did miracles, he cast out demons, he challenged corrupt authority. He goes to the cross. He dies and rises again. There's the story. But how did that story impact you? How does that story impact you? Being a witness is simply telling your story. Why does Jesus Christ matter? Why does Jesus Christ matter to you? In what way? And, and, and we don't communicate with people in, in, a, in an offensive kind of way. If, if someone is offended by the gospel, it shouldn't be because, you know, we're trying to make them feel bad or attempting to. We're, it, it's, it's, the offense is, is from the Spirit of God, if there is one, that they need to grapple with. It's not about you. You're just telling your story. This is what God means to you. So these disciples were called to go and tell their story. And then Jesus had a strategic process for them to follow. Start in Jerusalem. Start in the place where Jesus died and rose again. Start in the, in the, in the center of, of, of the Jewish faith. Start in, uh, not just of the Jewish faith, but the center of Jewish politics, Jewish life. Even corrupt life in many cases, corrupt politics and religion. But then don't stay there. And as we go into Acts, you'll see why that's important that Jesus said this. Um, go on to Judea. It would be sort of like, um, I was just down you know, in Bartonsville, Stroudsburg, okay, so we're in Pike County now, but this fits a little bit better. It would be like starting in Stroudsburg and then branch it out into Monroe County or, or the rest of the Poconos, okay? You start in this place and you branch out, you keep going. It is strategic. Now, on a, on a map, you've got um, north-south, okay? And, and here's, um, here's uh, the Sea of Galilee. So you've got Jerusalem here, surrounded by Judea. And then here's Samaria. And then here's Galilee, where Jesus was born and all the disciples were from. Oh, excuse me, Jesus was born down here, but he, he grew up here in Nazareth in Galilee. 
So, and a couple other places we talked about. But the next thing that Jesus says is really important because it makes sense so far to the disciples. Jerusalem, got it. Judea, we're with you. Samaria, wait. <laughs> Do we really have to? <laughs> it's like getting instruction from your parents, you know? They give you tasks to do, and you like the first one, you like the second one, then there's a job that you hate the most. Oh, I don't want to do that. Or more to the point, are there people you just don't like being around? You don't like them, they don't like you, and you both agree about that, and let's just avoid each other indefinitely, right? That's how the Samaritans and the Jews were. And the stories about Jesus and the Samaritans, we looked a lot at it in Mark. It kept coming up again and again and again. So if Jesus hadn't said specifically Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, they might have marched right around it and went somewhere else. But this is what you have to do. And this was fulfilled. When we get to Acts chapter 8, you want to read ahead? See what Philip did in Samaria. Great story, great things happen there because he obeyed the order, because he obeyed the process. And then beyond that, let's go to the ends of the earth. And the ends of the earth part includes a little, a little place called Bushkill, Pennsylvania. And the ends of the earth includes the place in which you found Jesus in your life. And maybe it was here, maybe it was somewhere else a long time ago, but the ends of the earth is, what, is where? The earth. And it is a timeless, excuse me, it is a timeless um, process and a timeless command that, that we continue to, to go and to go and to go and to let people know. And what you will receive, again, is the power to do it from the Holy Spirit. And then down to the ninth verse, after he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky. And as I had fun with talking about the, with, with the children, this part of the story. And these two men suddenly dressed in white stood beside them. Well, if you go to Luke 24, when Luke is writing about the, the resurrection story of Jesus, the, the first things that happened, there was women at the tomb that came. And they, there was confusion. They didn't know what was going on. And it says in the fourth verse of Luke 24, while they were wondering about this, that is the women at the tomb, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. Now you have in Acts chapter 1, two men with white, bright clothes stood beside them. Luke didn't name them, didn't know the names presumably, probably angels. Possibly, maybe even probably the same two. <laughs> we don't know. But um, it's, it's, it's kind of funny in a way, not just that they were looking up into the sky, but then these guys show up. Now, how did they get their attention? That's what I'm thinking about. <laughs> They're looking up, and all of a sudden, boom, there's two guys in white. Now, were they behind them? They didn't see them right away? Were they kind of right in the middle of them? I, you know, we don't know the disciples are standing in a circle necessarily. They were just kind of standing around. But you know, at some point, somebody realized, hey, where did you guys come from? <laughs> <laughs> or maybe they had to tap on the shoulder. Excuse me, fellas. Stop looking up. Come on. Can I have your attention, please? I don't know how it worked, but I, I, I think it's, it was very necessary for God to do that because they weren't here to gawk into the sky. They were here to, they had a job to do. And I think there's another reason that um, 
that God sent those angels to get them moving, um, not just to go and do what Jesus told them to do, to go to Jerusalem and wait for the Spirit, but just because this is what human beings do. And these were human beings, these disciples, who didn't have the Spirit yet, so they would have been that much more prone to, to attempting something like this. So Peter, James, John, Philip, Andrew, all the others are hanging around there. They're looking up in the sky, and now they can't see Jesus anymore, and they're kind of just real quiet for the longest time. Sooner or later, one of them looks down and says, that's where his feet left the ground. Don't stand there. Let's draw a big circle around it. Let's have a prayer meeting around the place where Jesus' feet left this earth. And let's build a shrine here, and let's tell the world to come out to this spot because this is where Jesus' feet left the earth. And you know what? Let's build a temple here because this is where Jesus' feet left the earth. I've never been blessed to go on a a tour of Israel, Um, but, you know, what I do know about them, they will take you to sites throughout Jerusalem and, and, and throughout Israel that were recorded in Scripture as best as they can figure out this is where something happened. So that's kind of neat that you could be there, you know, albeit 2,000 years later, but, you know, the basic location where things happen, that's pretty neat. And, you know, that would have been part of the tour, although there wouldn't be a tour because if they just kept staying there and, and, and built shrines about a place, then the gospel wouldn't have gone very far because the gospel isn't about location, although there's a process to move through locations, but we don't worship buildings. We don't worship a spot in the ground. We don't worship a rock. We don't worship anything that God made. We worship the God who made it, and the God who made it said, guys, get going. And that's why he sent two angels dressed in white. That's why they said, would you get back to Jerusalem now and pray? And that's exactly what they did. And it tells us then, and I won't take the time to read uh, the second half of Acts 1, um, but what you see first of all there is that in the 14th verse, after they did go back to Jerusalem, Luke takes the time to list who the disciples are, and then he says in verse 14, they all join together constantly in prayer, as I told the children. They finally got, got there and were doing what they were supposed to do, and that is wait. And while you're waiting, pray. So they were praying. And then Peter, as, as the leader at that point, in a lot of ways, the leader going forward, he then says, you know what? We need to do something about replacing Judas. And it, it describes that, and it gives a little bit more detail about the death of Judas and the meaning of that from a prophecy point of view from, um, from the Psalms. But it was to, to select someone. Now, what's interesting is they selected a guy named Matthias, and that is the one and only time the name Matthias appears in the Bible. Um, so we don't know the rest of the story, so it almost, it, it, it's like a, almost like a dead end, like, well, why is this in here? Okay, now in terms of Matthias, we don't know. But you have the same situation with several other disciples. We, we don't have the rest of the story about several of them. In fact, most of the story we have in Acts is, you know, Peter, John, James, and didn't last long, he got put to death by Herod. Um, And uh, we have something about Philip we'll look at, a little bit about Andrew. Uh, Maybe a couple of the others are like a passing reference, and that's it. 
So probably half or close to half of the disciples don't show up at all in the, in the, in the New Testament record. Um, so that doesn't mean Matthias is unimportant. He just kind of joined the group of the ones that were a little less known. But it doesn't mean they didn't do it doesn't mean that they didn't do good things. Um, but we do see a purpose in Revelation of why there needed to be 12. In Revelation 21, John in his vision from God is describing heaven and what heaven looks like. And in the 14th verse, he writes this. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So God has something in mind, <laughs> and he needed someone. He was, certainly wasn't going to put Judas' name there. So if nothing else, Matthias has his name there, okay? But, and, and even as, as beautiful and mysterious as that is, just think about the lesson being taught from those words. The foundations of heaven are built on the apostles. What did the apostles do? They went out into all the world. They preached the gospel like Jesus told them. They went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth for the rest of their lives. And then those that they taught picked it up. And they went on. And those who they taught went on and on until that message reached you and I in our lifetime here across dec you know, centuries and, and millennials and millennias <laughs> and oceans. And here we are in Little Bush Girl Community Church learning about the same one who came to them, and that is Jesus Christ. So I hope at some level this, this scripture lesson teaching today was helpful to you. And uh, let me close with this. I, I, I want to come back to what I said with the kids about, about waiting. Um, we all have the Holy Spirit. That is, we all who have accepted Christ. He's, he's in you. Okay, He's there. But we also see in Scripture, sometimes there's like a special blessing, special dispensation that comes from the Spirit in various ways and to do a particular work in our lives. Or, or maybe sometimes we just feel like God's not there and absent. Like He is, but we're not, we might put it this way, we're not feeling it right now, <laughs> that, that kind of language. Um, if you find yourself in that place, either, either God feels absent or it feels like God's not answering or, or you're just not sure what you are to do or you know, any kind of a mystery like that, well, this is a good lesson for us. Keep praying. Keep praying. Wait for the Spirit. We're not very good waiters, are we? <laughs> and I don't mean the people that serve you food at the restaurant. I mean the, the, that uncomfortable place of not having the answer, not having the closure, not having that which we really need, not having the health not having the relationship, not having the money, just not having. And when we pray, God will strip away maybe some of the false motivations or the, the, the less, or the kind of motivations that we shouldn't have, kind of like the disciples there. Restore Israel, make our nation great. No, that's not what I'm all about, Paul. How about coming back to you? And waiting for my spirit to work in you in a way that you can't even imagine right now. Lord, this we ask 
in our lives, that we willingly wait and that we willingly seek you out so that your spirit will do great works in our lives for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.